We are igniting the blockchain. I am your host, Elizabeth. Join me and my guests as we talk about everything related to cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. Nothing we say is legal advice or investment advice. Do your own research. Have fun and let's get started. This is Elizabeth, otherwise known as the Crypto Woman, and joining me today is Antoinette Marie. Antoinette works for YDC, which is listed as a venture capital and private equity firm, but it also builds software platforms. Is that right? Right. So uh, we build software, enterprise-grade software, uh, solving complex issues in uh, industrial industries. Prior to this, probably about the time you're interested in blockchain, uh, got started. You were working for uh, nonprofit and uh, nonprofit agencies internationally. Can you tell us a little bit about how that led you to blockchain and cryptocurrency? Sure, sure. Um, so the the company that I currently work for, YGC Data, um, is a, we try and leverage innovative and emerging technology to solve some of these issues in, in complex industry. And so that's, that's a little bit the correlation back into my previous role where uh, I worked in international aid and development and we were trying to be a little bit the renegades of the, of the aid world um, where we were building, we were trying to leverage private sector capital to deploy in emerging markets and fund um, emerging entrepreneurs. And part of that was taking some of the innovations that were coming out of our R&D and research labs and commercializing them and scaling them globally. Uh, and one innovation in particular was an asset transfer solution, is an asset transfer solution um, that's based on both Hyperledger and Ethereum that came out of our Nepal Innovation Lab. Uh, the, it's called SICA. And um, our role prior to my departure was to work as the commercialization arm of the products that were coming out of that lab and really help them scale out into uh, private sector, but also to other NGOs to help drive uh, increasing impact. Okay. And you have um, written about the use of blockchain technology and your visions for how it can solve problems. But there are so many people that don't understand the benefits of this technology or both in blockchain and the transfer of funds using cryptocurrency. Could you explain a little bit about your vision and how this will particularly help emerging economies, nonprofits? Absolutely. So uh, I wrote two artic articles uh, addressing two different sides of, of how blockchain can be leveraged in particular for humanitarian aid. The first is tackling the transfer of funds. This idea that unfortunately, sometimes, um, aid resources aren't deployed effectively or uh, they're misallocated. And that results in a loss of funds that are untraceable. Um, this has negative repercussions on an INGO's brand uh, and the confidence that that brand has with its donors, which is critical to funding these really important and impactful projects. So the, the picture that I don't want to paint here is that INGO's are uh, arbiters of fraud and that they're not useful and that we need to circumvent them and deliver assets on a blockchain straight to 
vulnerable populations. That's not the message I want to send here. The reason being is that NGOs, they know what they're doing. They had the infrastructure set up in country and they're specialists, world-class in intervention in a variety of different kinds of intervention. Um, and so they are, in my opinion, the most effective vehicles to distributing resources, uh, especially if we're looking at second tier aid where we're trying to develop and deploy capital to help grow uh, businesses and help entrepreneurs. You definitely need to have entrenchment in a community to understand who are the representatives, who do people trust, how can you work with government to deliver assets, um, what is the most effective means of response. And so I see blockchain as a way to enable trust and transparency, but to do it in a way where we're at, where the blockchain is a tool for IMGOs to leverage, uh, not as a way to circumvent INGOs or a government, for example. Um, and so I write a little bit about that, how we can have some traceability on the blockchain. And actually I feature, or I mentioned Sika quite heavily, which is the asset transfer solution that I mentioned previously, because what they do is they, what the Sika team does in Nepal and why I think it's so innovative is re really for two reasons. One, they take assets and they tokenize them so that you're not actually sending currency, but you're sending a token or a voucher that enables the end user to go to a distribution point and pick up their resources. Mm -hmm. um, so for this to work, and this is why I believe that you can't circumvent the process uh, at the intermediary of the INGO is that that vendor system needs to be set up and trusted. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I believe that the INGO has the amount of reach and the amount of skill to do that. <clears throat> and the second is that it's deployed via SMS. And so when we're talking about the most vulnerable and when we're talking about disaster situations, the first things to come back online isn't internet, it's SMS. And so that enables us to really be responsive um, and reach an end user the way that they already have access through the technology that they already own, which is usually a mobile phone that has SMS capability. It doesn't mean that in the developing world there isn't use of smartphones. I'm just saying that it's not necessarily as widespread as an SMS or as easily understood um, as SMS. So if you're wanting to drive impact, and the NGO that I worked for, World Vision Canada, World Vision is international, but I worked in the Canadian branch, we were particularly focused on the most vulnerable. And so that was our mission and our mandate. And so my opinion will always come from the context of those that are most at risk. So I'll give you an example. We, we chose not to do any of our operations from, from my team, Impact Investment in Nigeria, because they didn't meet some of the qualifications that we were looking for in terms of vulnerability. So their international aid, it's, it's quite complex and I'm by no means an expert, but what I've come to learn is that there really are different levels of risk and different kinds of interventions that need to be applied so that you're not doing more harm. And one example of this that we give often and that I learned on my journey when I first started working in international development is um, the kind of buy one, get one model. Tom's is one of the most popular examples and I'm sure uh, or likely a lot of your listeners have heard of this, but the Tom's model is actually quite destructive because what you're doing is when you're buying a pair of Tom's shoes and they're giving a pair of Tom's shoes uh, to a vulnerable population, you're circumventing a local economy that was once thriving and employing individuals in that region. So when we have to be careful when we talk about how we're going to help or bank the unbank or service vulnerable populations because it needs to come from the ground up has to start at the grassroots and 
aid organizations, especially ones with the scale like World Vision, can tap into that local network and make sure that when we're building something, we're building something in partnership with community members, that we're allowing them to be catalysts for their own change. And we are just the enablers of that catalyst. We're there to provide mentorship, to provide resources, and to provide guidance. But ultimately, the way that I envision the future of aid or that the way that I prefer to see intervention occur is in partnership with community leaders. So they're really taking ownership and accountability for what's going on and how the intervention is being um, executed. You talk about vulnerable populations. And I know earlier you and I had talked about your interest in sovereign identity for the humanitarian crises that the refugees are facing. You know, that just, uh, grips my heart every time I, I think of some of these uh, migrant populations and, and, and displaced people right now. But you have a way of explaining how a sovereign ID can actually empower these people in their lives in a way that I can't explain. Would you please do that? <laughs> sure. I, I, again, by no means am I an expert uh, neither neither in, in blockchain technology or in uh, the refugee crisis or humanitarian aid. Um, but I, I do believe that we are, one of the biggest crises that we are facing this century will be the, the refugee crisis. Um, last I checked, the population of displaced individuals uh, is the same, almost the same as the entire population of Canada. And so when you think about that, a country's worth of displaced people without identity, without access to an, a global economy, um, we have to start thinking about solutions that enable these people to participate and eventually either reintegrate into new countries, uh, if borders are open, Germany did a great job at this, or go back home. Well, and that doesn't seem to be an option for, for many people. <laughs> right. There, it might be extremely risky for them to do that. And especially when we're talking about refugees, these are people who are fleeing from their home for a particular reason, whether that be violence or an oppressive government. And so their identity and the necessity to protect that identity is critical. Um, I give an example in, in one of my articles. We all know about the Hong Kong protests. Imagine if um, I'm someone originally from Hong Kong. I'm living in Toronto. I want to say send money to somebody back home uh, to support to support the protests. If I do that and there's no security around my identity for when I send those funds, it's not unreasonable to think or it's not unreasonable to assume that there might be a risk that the Chinese government finds that identity, that whenever I come back home, they stop me at the border, that they put me in prison, that they freeze my bank accounts, or that they threaten my own family. And so identity is in this, the, the ability to um, have a private identity is important. Uh, I'm not saying that all transactions need to be private, um, but that there needs to be accessibility and choice as to when things are private and who has the right to view uh, what my identity is. 
and who has the ownership of those viewing rights. And so I should have that ownership. I should be able to say um, who is able to access the information around this transaction and more so what are they able to access. And so we're, we're starting to have an elevated technology around zero knowledge proofs and Zcash is a great um, cryptocurrency that's been working on that for quite some time. And uh, when we're talking, so bringing this back to the refugee crisis is the ability to not only provide them with an identity, um, there's some really interesting concepts that I, I just recently learned about called proof of personhood. So these new ways around um, confirming that somebody is who they say they are without necessarily needing a government document or a, a land registry, uh, because sometimes those things aren't available. They don't have access to that. Um, it, it might literally have been decimated. Let's take, for example, Syrian refugees, um, or they just might not be able to access that because the government's oppressive and using that as a way to control their population. Um, and so my article jumps into this idea of how can we enable not only self-sovereign ID, aid agencies are already doing this with biometrics uh, in, in refugee camps. I, can't, I, can't, I think it's the UN, um, but they're setting up biometric identification for refugees, uh, giving them a form of identity. It, it doesn't mean that it's self-sovereign and it doesn't mean that it enables them to participate in a global economy. And so say, for example, you um, enable individuals to provide services. Let's say they actually have some coding experience and they have access to a computer. And these, these are a lot of hypotheticals here, I'm completely aware, but let's just say that. Um, all of a sudden they have access to providing a service. And if they can have a platform from which they can provide that service and receive funds, it's a way for them to participate into an economy and hopefully a way for them to leave a refugee camp and integrate or reintegrate themselves uh, back into their country of origin or into a country with open borders. And on a, a self-sovereign ID platform, one could also um, keep track of things like their credentials. Right. And, and that's something that I think is misunderstood often that many of these refugees are highly credentialed people but have no way to prove their education or their knowledge and 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 reintegrate themselves into an economy in a way that they're used to performing. You know, it, it, talking with you helped me understand or remember <laughs> some of the passion about bringing the heart into this technology. And you had mentioned once to me about the, about how not having an ID really affects these people and their way that they think about themselves even. And it's debilitating to not have an identification. Can you speak a little bit about that, just so that we know that there is really a connection <laughs> between technology and uh, and feelings? <laughs> a little bit more nuanced than that. Okay. I think fundamentally, I've taken for granted, in my experience, you take for granted access to a bank account, you take for granted access to a driver's license or a passport. Um, and so, when you think about having those things pulled away from you, you're left into a limbo that you didn't actually realize was there because all of these services were at your fingertips. You're born and you have a social security number uh, in the US. Um, 
it's debilitating to a degree, especially when you're displaced to not have identity. Um, I was in a Syrian refugee camp uh, when I was visited Lebanon this past summer. And uh, the, the family that I met with, the man was a doctor, um, but clearly could not be practicing um, in the Syrian refugee camp. But one thing that was really interesting that he did tell me, and this is why I'm going back to, we can't, we can't circumvent aid organizations because it, it's just so much more complex than we think. Um, he didn't want an identity. Uh, and the reason being is that if he had an identity that signaled him as Syrian, um, he might not get the kind of jobs that he's getting, these bespoke jobs, these one-off jobs that actually helped him provide for his family. And so by not having identity, there was a social contract between himself and the Lebanese people that he might be working for, uh, where don't ask, don't tell. And that works for him. So if you if you come in all of a sudden and provide identity, it, it absolutely needs to be self-sovereign. These, these issues are more complex. Um, another thing to consider, if uh, he had an identity that tracked how long he's been in a refugee camp, he might not get access to particular aid services, or he might get kicked out of the camp. Uh, so it's nuanced and complex. I think fundamentally, uh, humans have the right to an identity, and they have the right of ownership to that identity. Um, absolutely. But when we're speaking in terms of at-risk populations, especially those who are, are running from oppressive regimes or who are not in their country of origin, identity can be tricky. It can be a double-edged sword. Um, so it's not that I, I don't agree with, with the sentiment. I absolutely do. But I approach it with caution. Um, because it's an extremely nuanced topic. One of the things that maybe we should make sure that people understand is the difference between a sovereign ID and a self-sovereign ID, uh, because that example of your Syrian doctor um, brought that distinction up. I've been talking with some people in the government here or associated with the United States government, and we're getting close to having uh, sovereign IDs on the blockchain, but those will be issued by the government, controlled by the government, probably not even on a pure blockchain. You know, there's, there's definitely a lot of things to consider there. So uh, maybe you could explain a little bit about how a, so a self-sovereign ID works and how it actually has benefits. So in my mind, self-sovereign ID is correlated with zero-knowledge proofs. I'm no expert in zero-knowledge proofs. I have a, a surface-level understanding of how it works. But essentially, the idea is um, right now, if we, if we wanted to access our medical records, um, we would have to go to our doctor. And our doctor would give us access to our records, uh, but they hold the records. That's, that's their property. It's not ours. We need to ask permission to view those records. Um, I remember I used to live in Miami. Uh, we used to go to this pediatrician. My whole family went there. And then one day they shut down. We had an appointment there and everything's boarded up, locked down. And that's it. And I, I vaguely remember my, uh, my mom having to go through this whole process of figuring figuring out what shots we had already received and what our medical records were because they just boarded up and left and we had no records. Fortunately, uh, she meticulously photocopied everything. So she had all the records. <laughs> um, but it's not inherent. It's not intrinsic, right? 
we don't we don't actually have the ability to own these pieces of our of what we call our identity uh, and then furthermore we don't have the ability to dictate how much is being shared and i think that as people come to realize a little bit more about privacy and just how much is actually shared on a day-to-day -day basis through our devices um, this will become more and more important and I hope that it becomes more conversational in its importance, but I also hope at the same time that the technology advances in such a way where most people don't even realize that their identity is being more so protected because it should just be fundamental. It should just be like, I turn on my computer and it works and I go on the internet and I'm on Google. Same, same sort of thing. I have my identity, it's, it's mine, it's accessible, and I can share whichever credentials I want to be sharing. Um, and they're verified and that's up to me. Um, so th that, that's a little bit of my understanding. I think the medical records is something that a lot of people can relate to because it's not, it's not obvious that um, it, you don't actually own it, but it's with all aspects of our identity, our, our driver's license, um, criminal records, uh, all of these things are, are owned by a centralized source. Um, and it doesn't mean that that source is uh, evil. It just means that we don't necessarily have our own ownership of it. So if we take it back to a refugee context or to an aid context, um, if that centralized organization is uh, n not necessarily friendly, um, then what do you do? If, if, if you want to have access to your bank account, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but it's, it's actually happening to me right now. I can't access one of my bank accounts uh, because my home branch has put a freeze on it. And the only way for me to unlock this bank account and access my funds uh, is to go back to Miami, back to my exact home branch and talk to the manager. I can't, I've tried calling, I've tried sending my passport, it doesn't work. I have to fly to Miami in the midst of a pandemic um, and talk to the manager. So I have this idea of like, oh, right. So if somebody wants to freeze all my money, they can. And it's a really scary thought to think that you might be a regular person. I, I like the Hong Kong protest because I think it's a really good example. When they started doing biometric identification, uh, the idea that a government can identify you in a crowd and just lock, freeze your bank accounts. What do you do? That's amazing that here we are in the United States and that's happening to you. And, and you had two very relatable instances where um, having control of your own credentials and your own access to your own um, information would have helped you. But, and, and I'm sure there's more that many, many people can think of. But you mentioned that, you know, we, we are all going to have the responsibility then of this information that we, that, you know, it's, it's ourself that we're, we're um, responsible for and all of the identifying parameters that we collect. But I've often wondered, how are we going to implement this? Who is ultimately responsible for providing this information to people so they can build their records? How are people going to access a platform? Which platform? How will they know? I mean, the implementation of this uh, is going to be huge. And then the people who are reading and receiving this information have to be able to trust that source that they are um, using the you know the storage that they're using. So I I love the idea of self sovereign IDs, and I just 
don't understand completely how we're going to implement that. Have you given that much thought? Yeah, that's, it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, I used to live in, in Toronto and my roommate is from Burkina Faso and, and she and I would always have this conversation uh, where she, she would say, Antoinette, if you give me a credential, but I don't trust its source, then your credential's worthless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I get frustrated because I know she's right. Um, it's, it's, we trust a U.S. passport because it's issued by the U.S. government. Right. Uh, we trust a degree from Harvard because it's issued by Harvard. These are trusted institutions. And so you're really asking the million-dollar question here is how do we create trusted systems um, that can be self-sovereign, um, but do not rely on a single point of failure. And I don't think anybody has that answer, um, but I certainly don't. <laughs> I, I haven't heard of it. I think it's a goal to aspire to. And I'm, I know that there are different companies that are working on sovereign ID, um, but I'm not sure how they're going to educate people to use it and uh, you know, push the implementation out. Right. I'll give you an example of something I recently learned called proof of personhood um, that I think is really interesting. And it's, it's as decentralized, I think, as you can get for a trusted system. Um, so say you want to distribute a microloan uh, to a community, but the, they don't have a credit history. There's no collateral. They can't leverage a vehicle or their home or property. And so you want to start small and you want to give everybody a $5 loan. How do you ensure that the individuals who are in that room are who they say they are um, and they're part of this community? And so what Proof of Personhood does, there's a representative who organizes a a Proof of Personhood ceremony and uh, has a series of individuals who are in a room. Uh, I'm not sure if their photo is taken, but they write their name down and this person is kind of speaking to each one and identifying them and they provide them with a loan. Um, And then several weeks later, the same process occurs again, and new people come in, and if uh, and um, they they either return their loan and then they can get a new one, um, and that same person is able to identify that person, and say yes, I can remember you were here from the month before, uh, and so I've identified you twice now. I've built the trust in you twice now, and, and I think it's an interesting concept. This idea that we agreed on a date and a time and an action. We agreed to meet here at this time and you are going to pick up this loan or you are going to return this loan. And if you do this again and again and again, um, then I will build my trust and my confidence in you. It, it's a little bit, it's a little bit like what China's trying to do with their social credit system. People, I, I mean, it's pretty draconic, but I also think it's really fascinated, fascinating, excuse me. Um, where they're trying to create a social credit system. So if you behave as a good human or a good citizen, which again, you have to be discerning of what that entails, like who's defining what a good citizen means. Um, But if you behave in a particular manner, then you're building up social credit that might enable you to apply, have, have greater candidacy for a scholarship application or greater candidacy for a job application. I think I think it's a really interesting concept, but the, the, the issue is, is very philosophic. How do we define 
what is a good citizen and what is not. It, it, it's kind of like asking the question, is there absolute truth or not? What is the meaning of life? I mean, these are extremely philosophic. Which You're right. Technology is like philosophy, right? <laughs> so it's meta-humanity and now it's meeting philosophy. Um, but you're right, those things are so subjective because what makes a good citizen in China is very different than what makes a good citizen in the United States. And it varies probably from culture to culture and political boundary to political boundary. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, we've always, some of my favorite people to read about are physicists. And to me, they, they fascinate me because they need to be dreamers just as much as they need to be mathematicians uh, or scientists. Mm -hmm. Physics is really about taking theories and then proving them right. But in order to prove a theory right, you have to be able to be creative enough to actually think through a theory first. Mm -hmm. um, and technology, especially now as we're moving towards these concepts of self-sovereign identity, um, is a little bit like that. It's here's the technology that we have, but what is the governance structure that we're placing behind it? How much is decentralized, too decentralized, where it doesn't function anymore? How much is too private, where now we're offering illicit activity on our platform? And so much we have to address a technological concern, like can we build this, is a very big part of the process. But after it's built, can we govern it properly? And, and what is good governance? That analogy of a physicist was really good because when it comes down to the math, we're, we're applying concrete truths to the philosophy, right? To the ideation. And that's what we need to do. You know, we've, we've got a wonderful um, visions and goals and dreams of how this can can work and how it can solve problems and now it remains to be seen how those absolute concrete technological solutions are going to be applied exciting times right absolutely absolutely it was uh very very inspiring to talk to you because it it gives me at least uh better connection to that vision of how blockchain can help the world. I like the hashtag blockchain for good. So we'll see if we can't use that for this post. <laughs> um, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. So if somebody would like to read the articles that you wrote, they can find those on your LinkedIn profile? Right, they can find them on LinkedIn. I'm also on Medium. Both of those articles are featured on CoinMonks. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, TT Marie MIA. I haven't been super active on Twitter, to be honest, but maybe if I get a bunch of followers, I might do a little more posting. Um, but every once in a while, I, I have these existential questions and I just have to write about them. So I always appreciate feedback. I love to talk about this. I appreciate you for having me on your podcast. Truly, thank you. You know, don't stop asking those existential questions. Three or four times you said, I'm not an expert. We have a lot of experts. We need those people who are asking those questions and coming up with these ideas of how, how to use this. So keep thinking, keep asking, and keep writing. <laughs> I hope we talk again soon. Okay. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Check out ignitingtheblockchain.com for materials referenced during this podcast 
and for a list of other conversations about blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. See you around the block.